today is Mark chapter 10, so go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 10. I am blessed to be here for the second time. I was here with you in the spring, and we were earlier in the Gospel of Mark. The title of the series is Good News of a Better Kingdom. Good News of a Better Kingdom. That is Mark's overall theme, and I know Kirk has been drawing that out week week by week. Um, Pardon my voice. I was telling Kayla, it has been a great week for me. Sinus-wise, and I'm still uh, feeling the effects as far as my voice goes, but um, I will proclaim it anyway. So Mark chapter 10, I'm going to read verse 31, which is the verse that Kirk stopped with last Sunday morning, because I think it all carries over into what Jesus begins to talk about next. And let me read a quote from a man named Dallas Willard, and I don't think I didn't give you all this. So I'll just read it. Because Peter had made a bold proclamation earlier. You know, we have left everything to follow you, Jesus. And then Jesus spoke of the reward that would would be granted to those who left everything to follow Jesus. So Mark 10.31 is a great reversal statement. What that means is... Jesus reverses our normal and natural thinking, and, and he's teaching his disciples. He says, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. That's the context of what comes after. Willard says this, Jesus knew that much of what Peter and the others thought to be, to be important was not really important. And that what they thought to be of no importance was often of great significance before God. Their thinking would have to be rearranged before they could understand their reward for leaving all to follow Jesus. So Jesus is aware that the disciples' thinking is going to have to constantly be adjusted. And so what we're about to read is there's a lot of adjustment that still needs to be made. I like this because this is still true of me and it's true of you. Their thinking would have to be rearranged. Their thinking would have to be rearranged. God continually rearrange and reorient and readjust my thinking. Because your ways are higher than my ways. And your ways are very different from my natural ways. God, continue to form me through what you teach us in Mark chapter 10. So let's pick up in 1032. So then they're going on the road. It says, and they were walking on the road going up to Jerusalem. I'm reading from New American Standard, which is not what Kirk typically reads out of. So bear with me there as well. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and to the scribes. And they will condemn him to death. And they will deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and spit upon him, and scourge him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. And James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to him, saying to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we we ask of you. And 
Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant that we may sit in your glory, one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, this is unbelievable. They said, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left This is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And hearing this, the ten, the other ten, they began to feel indignant with James and John. So calling them to himself. And so Jesus Jesus huddles everybody up again. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles... Lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to become or to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve And to give. I'm going to repeat that. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Father, what a tremendous text we have before us this morning. It is very humbling to be charged with the responsibility of communicating this to us today. But I pray that all of us with humility and with open hearts and minds to be formed and readjusted constantly by you would, would, would draw from this and learn from this what you would have us to. That we would learn, Lord, that we are most like Christ when we are giving and serving. And Father, forgive us for that does not come natural to any of us here. So we are in many senses much like the disciples, but now we see in, in retrospect, we see the, the gospel, we see the cross, we see the resurrection, we have sight uh, looking back that, that they didn't have at this time looking ahead. So ultimately use the gospel uh, of, of the death of Christ and his resurrection to, to form us and shape us. We need you and your spirit to, to form us and shape us, and we know your word today is going to be part of that process in our lives as followers and disciples. In Christ's name we pray and ask these things. Amen. All right, what a joy to be with you this morning. I don't know about you, but I could use that extra hour every Saturday night. You like that? I really enjoyed that. One of the reasons I enjoy it, I took Jake, uh, one of my sons, to Athens yesterday to to watch Georgia play football. That's my alma mater. That's where I attended school before I went to seminary. And when Georgia ran out on the field yesterday, they announced that we are now the number one football team in the United States of America. And I'm sitting there thinking, don't do that. (laughs) The emotions of a fan, a lifelong fan of the dogs. I mean, I've seen all the highs 
and all the lows. The reason I share that is if you look at verse 32, those who were following Jesus were both fearful and amazed. <laughs> wow! But then, whoa, right? I mean, think of the emotions of following Jesus to Jerusalem. They felt the, the, the way I'm, I'm kind of feeling, that, that there, is, there is both an awesome wonder here, but then on the other hand, there's this fear of, where's this all going to lead to? You know, what does this mean? P, P, and Peter's been talking about it, right? Jesus, we left what? We left everything to follow you. So here they're going to Jerusalem, and, and, and they've got these emotions. And I'll be honest with you, when you look at verse 32, some of the translators and commentators say, well, you know, the, the first group of people he's talking about, the, the first day, where is this verse 32? Uh, they were amazed that that's talking about, you know, the 12, and then those who, were followed, those who followed, they were fearful. That's talking about the rest of the crowd. But then there are also commentators who don't see a distinction between those emotions. And let's be honest, if you, if you look at the Gospels, the disciples, and many times they were both amazed, and many times they were very fearful. And if you look at my life and your life, there are times of amazement and wonder, and then there are times of, of fear. So I think it goes with it that as followers and disciples of Christ, there are times of wonder and amazement. And there, then there are times of, Lord, I believe, you know, help my unbelief. So that's, that's the context here. Now, what I want to show us is that this, this grand and glorious kingdom of God is so drastically different from the kingdom of man and the kingdom of the world. And that's drawn out in this text. In fact, I think there are in this text, at least, I'm going to highlight four amazing, fearful truths to borrow those emotions in verse 32. There are four amazing and fearful truths that are unique about the kingdom of God that are very different from the kingdom of man. St. Augustine said there are, there are two kingdoms, and they're built on two loves. The kingdom of God is built on the love of God to the detriment of self. The kingdom of man is built on the love of self to the detriment of God. And you find this throughout the scriptures, two, two completely opposite kingdoms. Now, the first thing I want to point out, this is the first truth, is the king's destiny, okay? The king's destiny. When you look at God's kingdom, there is an absolute, ultimate destiny that he keeps pointing to that we need to keep reminding ourselves of but if you look at this first portion of the text in verse 32 through 34, this to me reminded me of, of in, in, in college and in seminary courses that I would take and the professor at the beginning of the course would lay out a syllabus. You got those? And you look at that syllabus and you see what's coming. This is the path ahead. They're, they're setting the course for the semester. And if you were like me, the very first thing I did was look, where, where are those big exams, you know? That's what I need to focus on, and not the details that were going to get me there. The professor's in charge. He sets the course. He tells everybody, this is where we're going. These are the expectations. So what are the expectations for disciples of Christ? Where, where are we going as we go to Jerusalem? Well, he lays it all out for them. Look at what he says in verse 33. He calls the 12 and they huddle up. He pulls them off to the side. And he's done this before. He has done this repeatedly in the gospel. He says, 
And I read it. Hey, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn Him to death. They will deliver Him to the Gentiles. They will mock Him. They will spit upon Him. They will scourge Him. They will kill Him. And three days later, He'll rise again. That's the bare facts. That's where this is going. So in verse 45, when He says, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many, we have at the beginning of this text and the end of this text where Jesus is going, but at the beginning we just have the bare facts and not the why is He going there or, or, or how is He going there. We don't have the, the underneath the surface stuff that I think the disciples should have been curious about. But they completely miss this. And we're going to talk about that in the next point. But let's just take things in his syllabus, in his course, as he sets the course. Let's just take them at face value. In verse 33, behold, he draws attention to what's going to happen to him. Since to the Jewish mind who had been studying the prophets, if they'd been studying it well, they would recognize that all these things were foretold of the Messiah. But there were much that they were missing. And as I said earlier, we will talk about that in just a moment. But what I want you to notice first is that all of this seems so passive. In other words, it seems like they are going to do this to Jesus, and they are. They are going to scourge him. They are going to spit upon him. They are going to mock him. They are going to kill him. So it seems on the surface, if you're just looking at the bare facts, that the they, whoever the they are, and we know the rest of the story, that they're in charge of what's going on. But because he tells them this in advance, later on they're going to look back on this and Peter's going to say, oh, it wasn't they. One of the things this first point draws out is the sovereignty of God over all the details and all the circumstances that that the cross and the resurrection, especially the cross, was not a last-minute Hail Mary. It wasn't a plan B. But Jesus truly was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world and that God in his sovereignty was completely in control of every single detail and and that from eternity past, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit had laid out, they had charted the course that Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem. In John's gospel, Jesus kept saying, the hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. What hour? The hour preordained and predetermined by the Father in eternity past that all this would take place. So we see as he lays out the destiny of the king, that within that is the sovereignty of God. We also see the depravity of man. Because they are so blinded by the questions and the concerns that are on their hearts and minds. In other words, they are so blinded by their desire for personal gain and selfish glory that they don't even grasp a single thing about what he's talking about. So I see in the king's destiny the sovereignty of God and the depravity of man that that proves there's, there's none who seek him, there's none who understand. We have altogether become useless, in Luke 18.34, in another situation, circumstance, where he told them these exact same things, listen to what it says about their mentality. They understood none of these things. And this saying was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the things that were being said. 
So there's a sense in which their own depravity was a reason they don't see the, the, the truth behind the facts. And, it, and it's God's uh, hiddenness hiding these things from them so that later on they will realize some of the things that we're talking about at the moment. But I, I do want to make one point before we move on about the one point that I'm still on, and that's about the love of God. Because as we look at 33 and 34, and again, they will mock him, they will spit upon him, they will scourge him, they will kill him. We know that ultimately when you ask the question, who killed Jesus? The best answer I've ever heard was this one. It's not, it wasn't ultimately Judas for money. It wasn't ultimately the Jews out of envy. It wasn't ultimately Pilate for fear, but ultimately it was the father for love. The father did this, we know from the rest of the story, because of love. So first, there's the king's destiny. And you and I have to keep this before us to be reminded in the details of life, of the sovereignty of God, our need for revelation and illumination from God and His Spirit to be able to understand the gospel and where all this is going. And then to be reminded of the love of God as we answer the question, Hey, time out, Jesus. Did you just say you were going to be killed? Time out, Jesus. Did you just say you were going to be mocked and spit upon? Like, they're not asking those questions. They're not asking either, what will this achieve? So, so let's move on to my next point, which is the disciples' delusion. Now, honestly, the longer I worked on this message this week, I wanted to scratch out delusion and instead insert the word depravity. Because their delusion is a, res- is a result. The reason they're deluded about all this is they are depraved, which means they are selfish, they are fallen, uh, they're, they're glory hogs, so to speak. And, and this is what I'm getting at. Jesus talks about the cross at the beginning of this text and the end of this text. And right in the middle is this horrible question by the disciples. It's a fallen question. It's a selfish question. It's an immature question. It's a question all of us at times have asked. What can I get out of this? <laughs> right? In fact, they are, they, are, they are not concerned at all, so to speak, of the details of 33 and 34 that Jesus has just mentioned because they have in mind glory for themselves. In fact, one commentator says the reason that they missed the resurrection, he talks about the resurrection, verse 34. Three days later, he will rise again. They missed the resurrection because they are in denial about the death part of this. In other words, they closed their mind to his death, therefore, they missed the resurrection. They are so hung up on themselves that they are completely missing the cross because all they can think about is glory and the crown. So their depravity, their daftness, their delusion is revealed in both what they ask for and what they say they can do. What they ask for is in verse 37. Grant that we may sit in your glory. Hey, we want to be up there where you are. We want to be glorious and powerful and famous and have honor. We want to make a name for ourselves. Good grief, we could trace this one all the way back to the original sin, Adam and Eve. 
wanting to be like God. We could trace it all the way back to the Tower of Babel. Let's come and build a name for ourselves. Let's be great on our own terms and in our own way. Boy, Jesus is going to be glorious. I'm going to be right up there with him, you know, with my name on the marquee and my name in lights, and we'll be on the cover of all the magazines. We're going to be, we're going to be glorious. That's the mentality and attitude that this, this question comes from. And then, and then when Jesus mentions, can you drink the cup? Well, sure, whatever it takes, Jesus. We'll do whatever it takes to be with, with you in glory. They're not putting any thought. They have no depth. They have no idea what, what's in that cup. And so this text proves for me and for you how depraved and delusional we can be. I, I've asked some pretty bad questions in my life, but this is right up there with the worst questions that could ever be asked, right? Hey, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Their timing is poor. <laughs> Their timing is poor because Jesus has just told them about the cross, right? Their timing was consistently poor. It would be like, okay, in just a few minutes, we're going to all celebrate communion. We're going to have the Lord's Supper together. We're going to remember the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. We're going to remember what he did sacrificially for us. It's amazing to me that the disciples continued to have arguments about who was going to be greatest and who was going to be most glorious. Immediately following him, talking about the cross, they got into an argument right after communion about who was going to be the greatest in Luke 22. So yeah, we all take communion together and then we argue over who's the best. That was their timing here. That, that, that's their mentality. So as we draw out, you know, I would have wanted to say to, to the disciples, Jesus doesn't. I love the song we sang earlier. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. How patient, how loving and patient he must be. Are you even listening? I would want him to have asked them. You know, you've, you've been there. I, I was, people have been talking to me in conversation, and then, and then I, my mind will wander. My family is here. They can testify. And I will ask a question during the conversation that proves that I, I wasn't even listening to the last five minutes of dialogue. You ever been there? <laughs> they had already answered in your talking what you just asked about. And you're like, whoa. <laughs> that, that's what they do. That's what the disciples do, and they, they do it consistently. Now, let's not act like, oh, had I been there, I would have gotten it, you know? Had I been there, I would have I figured out early that, that the cross was going to come before the crown. No, we would have been just as daft as the rest of them because our, our selfishness and our fallenness and my desire to be first and liked and comfortable and all that dominate is so ingrained in our thinking that it, it, it affects all that we do um let's not i gotta move on let's not miss verse 40, verse 41 okay i do need to point out that in verse 38 when he talks about the cup they're not able to drink that cup you know why none of us are able on our own to drink that cup if we were able to own our own drink that cup, we could save ourselves from the wrath of God. The cup throughout Scripture symbolized the wrath of God that sin demanded. So when Jesus was in Gethsemane and he was talking about the cup, 
and let this cup pass from me. He wasn't fearing physical death. What he was talking about was that agony that he was going to experience bearing the wrath of God as a substitute, a voluntary substitute, laying down his life for the sheep. What was in the cup was the wrath of God, and Jesus entered into that. He drank that. He was baptized into that so that then we could follow him in safety into a right relationship with the Father. So, no, they're not going to drink that cup. They could never drink that cup, but they are going to die a death like a crucifixion. In fact, I'll give you the rest of the history. James was going to lose his head at the hand of Herod Antipas, and John, the, the two guys that asked the question, John was later to suffer a lonely exile and death on the island of Patmos. So James and John end up drinking a cup, but it's not the full cup of the wrath of God, but it's their, their cross as they take up their cross and follow Jesus. But what I want you to notice is how toxic selfishness is. How toxic self-glory is. It affects us all. There's a proverb that says, if I build my gate high, I better be aware because all of you are going to want to attack me if I try to make my name great. It's going to tick all of you off. If I begin to think that I'm great and wonderful, all of you then have something rise up in you that's called pride. That, that, and that's what happens in verse 41. Look at what the other ten began to feel towards James and John. What was it? Indignation, hostility. Oh, who do they think they are? Getting all close to Jesus, asking him if they can share his glory. See, that attitude is, is, is toxic, that, that selfish sin. So, so Jesus calls another gathering. So let's move on to the next point. First, there's this destiny, and then there's their delusion, their depravity. So then he calls the 12 together again because he feels this, this thing's about to fall apart. But he's not going to let it fall apart, but they're, about, they're falling apart. They're, they're selfish, they're disunified, they're, they're hostile toward one another. So, so then he gives them the kingdom's directives. This is very unique. It's very radically different from the kingdom in which, the, the fallen kingdom, the kingdom of the world. And let's look at what he says, and this is, this is where... This is in verse 42. You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over people. <laughs> the people who don't know God, the Gentiles, they love to be the boss. They love to be in charge, you know. James wanted to be Darth James and John wanted to be Darth John, right? <laughs> don't make me force choke you, right? I mean, there's a reason that that power is so appealing to us. So look, the, the Gentiles lord it over people and they exercise authority. But, you know, I've got highlighted in my Bible in bright yellow, verse 43, because this applies not just to this issue, but all issues relationally, morally, socially. And this, this, not so among you. Yeah, the rest of the world may think like this, behave like this, operate like this. Y'all are all looking out for number one. You're competing with one, one another. Look, guys, not so among you. We're different. We're salt and light. We have a different king. Therefore, we have different directives. Read the Beatitudes. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Rather than trying to be great, be one who serves. 
Those are the king's directives. So I'm part of a different kingdom. I have a new nature. And just like the fall leaves change, that old growth is being pushed off, right, through a process. And and new growth is going to come in the spring. So to the old kingdom that we used to live in is being pushed out and a new kingdom that that sees greatness in a different light. Uh, Jesus redefines or actually defines properly for us what greatness is in the kingdom. We're not in the old kingdom. We're not in the Gentile world. This is what I wrote to myself. This is note to self, okay? Neil's note to self this week. I was flying upside down, and I didn't even realize it. So, God, would you take my fallen framework, because it needs to be wrecked and dismantled, and a completely new mindset, a kingdom mindset, given to me and cultivated in me. And then I said, this is going to take place through the gospel of verse 45, which will transform me. I'm going to get to that in just a second. But let me tell you what that means for me. If you look at my stats, if you look at who I am, I'm a 47-year-old Caucasian male. Okay? So, so let, me, let me write down some other things that, that, that I told myself this week as I worked through this text. I'm a male, but I'm first a Christian. Not so among me. So what does that mean? How I relate to women is to be informed and transformed by the fact that I serve under a new king with different directives. I'm 47, but I'm first a Christian before I'm 47, which means how I relate as a 47-year-old to all other ages is informed and, 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 and transcended by the fact that I'm first a Christian. Before I'm a male who's 47, I'm first a Christian. I'm a Caucasian, but I'm first a Christian. <laughs> Which, which means that the way in which I relate to all other races and groups is not dominated by my particular race, but by the fact that I serve a king who gives me a new directive in relationship to all people. I'm an American, but before I'm an American, I'm a Christian. And so how I relate to Americans and the nations is affected first by my service to Christ. I'm a husband, but I'm first a Christian. So that affects how I relate to my wife. I'm a dad, but I'm first a Christian, which relates how I affect to my children. I think you're starting to get the point. I'm a pastor. Okay, I'm a pastor. I have a congregation, but but I'm first a Christian. So I'm, I'm here today serving the kingdom rather than being locked up down there at Glenlock where I do my job, right? And Kirk's not locked into this building. He goes to, he's preaching, he's serving a king. I could go on and on, but all I'm saying is that once you're under the king's directives, you're no longer like the Gentiles, and we are to be dominated by a different mentality. And and the mentality first in this particular text is that we, I think Martin Luther, let's celebrate the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation by quoting Martin Luther. I've given you a lot of material this morning. A Christian, but it will still get out before Kerr, all right? <laughs> Y'all tell him I said that. You tell him I said that, Courtney. Listen, listen to what Luther said, and I believe this is so true. A Christian is the most free Lord of all, subject to no one, and a Christian is the dutiful servant of all, subject to everyone. So I am at one time completely free, 
But then I'm also completely bound, for I'm bought, I'm bought with a price. Martin Luther King Jr. said this, anybody can be great because anybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. But go ahead and get your degree if you're in college, okay? You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. But it would be helpful if they did. I'm adding my comments. Uh, Dr. King said, listen to this, you only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. Taking all your directives from the king transcends and transforms all the particular categories of your life because now I'm under a new master. I'm under a new ruler. Now, am I there yet? No. But remember, the fall pushes off the old growth. The spring brings in the new growth. And that has happened for 47 years naturally in my life. And since I was 12, probably spiritually every year in my life. And I'll be honest with you, it's going to take my whole life for this process to take shape. But remember the destiny. One day we shall be like him, right? Let's move on to the last point because we got to know how is this all going to happen. I think verse 45 may be one of the most significant verses in all the New Testament. And you need to highlight it. You need to memorize it. You need to go back to it again and again and again. You know, in my studies as a pastor and teacher, man, I, I came across this verse as a young pastor a lot. And so Mark 10, 45 is the core of Christianity. He's talking about what greatness is and what success is. But then, then I want to know how is this going to happen because right now I'm a fallen, sinful human being who is selfish and depraved to the core. What, God, what are you going to do? Well, here's what he's going to do. This is the king's deliverance, okay? Look at this. This is what Jesus says. If you want to be first, serve everybody. Don't take a title, take a towel, right? You don't need a title, a title, you need a towel. You need to serve, right? John 13. We'll go and preach that. We're not going to go and preach that. Let's, let's preach verse 45. And this is what he said. Look, even the Son of Man, sure, I could give this directive to you. But even the Son of Man operates with this directive. Because he did not come to be served, to be petted and pampered and taken care of, to be comfortable. But he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know what this means? The reason service and giving is one of the kingdom directives, one of the main kingdom directives, is because the king's heart is a servant heart. And this is what I mean by that. When you look at this whole concept of a ransom, it's a payment. It's a payment by one party on behalf of another to set that party free. And what Jesus is saying is that he was sent as a payment from someone for someone in order to set them free. Mark 10, 45 explains why the details of the gospel that he talked about earlier were, were, were presented. What does that mean? What's it going to accomplish? Here's my point. Within the heart of God is this mentality of submission and service. Not mentality, but heart. Within the Trinity is this heart of submission and service. So I want to quote Keller, and then I'm going to give you an illustration. 
Tim Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, says this about the Trinity. Now we're talking about the king's heart and why things operate the way they do in life. That when you serve, that's great. And when you're selfish, that's messed up and it messes everything else up. Why does life operate that, whether, whether we like it or not, whether we argue with it or not, or whether we accept it? Because God is like this. In the Trinity, the greatest in the Trinity, we're talking Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is the one who is most, most self-effacing, most sacrificial, most devoted to the good of the other. Jesus redefined or more truly properly defined headship and authority, taking the toxicity of it away, at least for those who live by this definition rather than by the world's understanding. What do you mean by that, Neil? This is what I mean. Jesus completely submitted to the Father in humble sacrifice in order to ransom you and me. He descended, he came to earth in the incarnation. That was a self-giving because he left his glory above, right? And he descended, he came down into humanity and took upon himself a, a body and, and born in Bethlehem in a feed trough. And I could, we could go through his life of poverty and rejection. So he descended and self in self-giving love, he submitted to the Father in order to rescue and ransom us. And since he did that, then our hearts and minds following that and receiving that and trusting in that and loving that, then that transforms us to become that way as well. So, so in God's heart is this idea of submission. For example, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, submits and serves now the Father and the Son's will on earth. Does that make sense? The Trinity is beautiful, co-equal, co-eternal, eternally beautiful, merciful, loving, in that in them, in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the let us of Genesis 1 and 2, there is submission and sacrifice and willingness. And because that's in the heart of God, you and I, are able to be saved. If in the heart of God was complete selfishness, if in the heart of God was this, was this glory that didn't have mercy, none of us would be saved. As a dad, I come across some things that help me understand it and illustrate it often. I will tell a quick story and then I'll close. We may go as long as Kurt. <laughs> Bennett liked that. I want to tell a story about Bennett. I don't know what had happened, but Jake, this, the other, one of the other sons is here. Jake, Asa, and Bennett. If I get them right. Jake had done something, and he, he got his iPad taken away as discipline. Y'all know how important iPhones and iPads are. I don't remember why it happened. I don't remember exactly what the details were, but Bennett enjoys Jake having his iPad because Bennett also likes to use the iPad, but it was taken away. So they're all suffering, Right. Well, I'm at my desk one, one, one evening, and, and, and Bennett finally comes to me with this proposal. He says, Dad, he says, is there anything that I can do to buy back Jake's iPad? <laughs> well, he didn't use that phrase, to, to, to win back or get back Jake's iPad. And I thought to myself, well, that's interesting. Let me see what I can come up with. Long story short, Jake got his iPad back because of the intervention of Bennett. 
let's imagine ourselves in eternity past, okay? And let's imagine that in the eternity is this eternal desire for God to express his glory. And one of the key aspects of his glory is mercy and love and and sacrifice and submission and self-giving. We don't know it, but God knows it because God's living in perfect union, perfect submission forever and ever. But we're about to know it. Because man's going to fall, man's going to sin, man's going to rebel, man's going to completely, completely deny and, and live against God's glory. But it's almost to me, I'm, I'm putting this on my level, that the Trinity got together and said, is there anything that we can do to buy them back? And the Son says, I will go, Father, fulfill your plan. And the Spirit says, I will go and I will submit and I will live in them and create within them this selfless giving spirit because without without me, without the Holy Spirit, they'll never become that. And I don't have time to work out all the details, but, but do you see where I'm going with this? Where I'm going with this is that the king's deliverance of his people was, an, was the ultimate act of sacrifice and submission and, and voluntary service and if that is what has saved you, is that, if that is what is in you, then you will strive in your daily life to also be, like your Redeemer, like your King, a self-giving, self-sacrificing person as a way of honoring Him, as a way of pointing to Him, and as a way of being a reconciler of people to God and people to one another. So that's, that's our application today. You know, I'll close with this. John Stott says that every day we have a choice to live between their question and Jesus' statement in verse 45. What are you going to do for me? Versus, this is what the Son of God has done on my behalf. It's a choice between selfish ambition and sacrifice, between power and service, between comfort and suffering. Between selfish ambition and sacrifice, between power and service, and between comfort and suffering. Every single day, we're faced with little bitty choices along the way as to what kind of life we're going to live. And the more we give and the more we serve, the more we're like Jesus. Jesus.